from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. When I was back in college, I bought a new car, a new-to-me car, you know, a used car. It was a 1980 Honda Civic hatchback. I think it had over a 100-horsepower engine. I'm not sure. It might have been just under 100. But does anybody remember this car? Some of you may remember seeing these cars, right? Anybody ever own a Honda Civic hatchback? Yeah, we had, I had one. I had multiple ones. So one night, I had my new car... And I decided to go get some Chinese food one night, so I went to the Chinese restaurant, get the takeout. I'm coming out of the Chinese restaurant, and I'm walking through the parking lot to get into my new used car, and there are these two young ladies checking me out. I'm like, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Remember, I'm not married. My my wife and kids do not exist in this story. you got to remember that. So... They're uh, checking me, and I'm glancing over there, get, you know, shooting one of those smiles, you know, and there's a little, you know, so they're like, yeah. So I get in, I unlock the Honda, I get in the door, I sit down, you know, I put the shades on, <laughs> you know, I check, they look over at them, they're still looking at me, man. They're like, they're like, not just, not a little glance, they're like looking at me. Roll down the window, 
turn on the radio and crank up the tunes. Are you with me? And these ladies are checking me out. I'm saying, oh yeah, I am all that, right? So what's going on is I, I'm getting and I manual transmission, I put that puppy into reverse, kick the gas, pop the clutch, zing it around, and I start to back out of the parking And one of the young ladies is coming over towards me. And I'm like, she's coming to me, windows down, and she's coming towards me. I'm like, she wants a ride home tonight. Yeah, that's right. So I'm thinking to myself, these ladies want to ride home. This is my opportunity to meet some, some cute young women. And as she comes over to the car, I'm like, how you doing? Yeah, how you doing, right? And she actually doesn't make eye contact me, with me when she comes to the car. She actually reaches on top of the roof of my car and grabs my Chinese food and hands it in through the window. You know, so I went from Tom Cruise to Tom Nobody in a split second. I think about that. Now, by the way, I would have you noticed that the color of that car that I had is the same color of a jet fighter from Top Gun. I just wanted you to know that. But I think about that moment and how fragile the young male ego is and the old male ego and the middle-aged male ego, right? But here, here what had happened to my ego in that moment, it got inf- I had inflated up my ego making all kinds of assumptions about myself. And all it took was one little act of kindness, one little act of mercy for my Chinese food and my dinner to take that male ego and to deflate it. And I said, thank you, and she walked away and her friend walked away and I drove back to my dorm and had a good Chinese meal. But I think about that, and I think about this gospel lesson today And one of the things you don't pick up on in this gospel lesson in Luke is that Luke is actually starting out his gospel lesson about the birth of Christ with John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth and very little mention of Joseph. We learn about what happens with Joseph in the gospel of Matthew, but I think about this and I'm wondering what's going on in the male egos of Joseph and Zechariah? Let me remind you what was going on with Zechariah, because Zechariah was a priest in the temple. And if you remember the story, you may not remember the story, but the angel came to Zechariah in the temple, and he doubted the angel, what the angel was saying, and so he was silenced. He couldn't speak from that moment on. He had been offering sacrifice in the temple, and as he comes out from offering sacrifice as a priest, he's standing at the altar railing in the temple, and he's supposed to give a blessing to the people and he can't speak. God has silenced him until the birth of John the Baptist. So Zechariah, in this patri- think about this, in this patriarchal society, Zechariah is silenced. Joseph is mentioned a little bit, but basically, remember, Joseph, as the kids taught us this morning, Joseph had to kind of be brought on board. What was going on inside of his male ego as he wanted to divorce and get rid of Mary? What I find interesting about the Gospel of Luke is that Gospel writer here starts out with lifting up two women in a patriarchal society. 
lifting up Elizabeth and Mary. And notice that Zechariah, the one who can't give a blessing, notice in the story, who is giving the blessing to Mary? Who's giving the blessing? Who is saying blessing to Mary in the story? Did you hear the gospel lesson this morning? Elizabeth. Elizabeth, her husband is not doing any blessing, but Elizabeth is recognizing the blessing that is in Mary. And I think about how egos get, get, get kind of deflated <laughs> and souls get inflated in this story. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Mary's response was to this favor, this blessing of God's child in her womb? Did you notice what was going on inside the soul of Mary? Well, let's remind ourselves from the gospel lesson this morning says this, that the, and what I think the incarnation is revealing to us is this God's mercy showing up in the lives of Mary and Elizabeth and Joseph and Zechariah. But notice that what the response of Mary is this, my soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. What's going on inside, not the ego of Mary, but the soul of Mary? It's glorifying God at a soul level. There's a feeling of fulfillment because of God's mercy. That God's mercy has, become, has come to her and God's favor and God's grace has come to her and to Elizabeth. And her response, natural response, is this rejoicing. That this soul-filled rejoicing and glorifying of God. And the soul, I, don't, I hope you understand or know this already, but the soul is different than the ego. The ego and the soul are two different places we can live out of. Let me illustrate for you this morning what this looks like. The ego, when we live out of the ego, what we tend to do is we have this sense of emptiness, and so when we feel empty, we start to glorify ourselves. The ego wants to glorify itself. It wants to inflate itself. It wants to pump up itself. It wants to put shades on and think it's Tom Cruise right? Self-importance starts to get elevated. It, the glorification of the self is happening. And what happens is that feeds our own pride, which actually leads us to feelings of emptiness. <laughs> and then what do we need to do? We need to glorify ourselves more to make up for that emptiness. And this cycle of the ego is this way. And you notice that if you give in to the cycle of the ego, you actually never feel fulfilled. If you keep focused on glorifying yourself, you'll just get trapped in this cycle. If you don't believe me, believe, would you believe neuroscience? If I, if I brought a neuroscientist in here today and had them explain to you how your brain worked, would you believe them? It's, I found it interesting that according to neuroscience and scientists, that pride uses the same neural pathway as shame and guilt. I wonder why. I wonder why pride is why we're wired for pride the same way we're wired for shame and the same way we're wired for guilt. And, we're to, and it, so notice how pride, that even neuro, from a neuroscientific point of view, our pride is fed by the same pathway. And that's part of the reason we feel empty. Our pride will never fulfill us. Our pride will just lead to more shame and guilt that will then lead to more pride that will lead to more shame and guilt that will lead to more pride that will lead, and we just get stuck in the cycle of the ego. And neuroscience actually reveals that. 
We already know that. That's the way we think. That's the way we're wired as human beings. The soul, and that's what we see in Mary, acts much differently. The soul looks like this. The soul glorifies God. (laughs) The soul doesn't glorify self. The soul says to God, God, you are magnified in my life. In fact, we call this prayer of Mary the Magnificat because she is magnifying God. She's not magnifying or glorifying herself. She's actually seeing herself as in a humble state, and she is now glorifying God and seeing how big God is and how great God is and how God's mercy and favor is being revealed to her, and so her soul glorifies God, which actually makes her feel more humble. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that, that as you glorify and praise God, do you feel more humble when that happens? That when we worship, we start to experience more humility. That we stand in the mountains, we experience more humility. And then what happens in us? We sense fulfillment, not emptiness. I want you to notice that about yourself today. That when we worship God and glorify God and magnify God, that our our souls start to change. And we start to change internally in a way that pride and ego will never fulfill us. My question to you today is, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul today? Are you glorifying and magnifying God, seeing that God is bigger and greater than you can ever imagine? And are you experiencing humility and experiencing that fulfillment that comes with worship and glorification and magnification of God? Or are you trapped in your own cycle of ego, of your own need for self-importance and pride? It's a dark place to be, isn't it? But when we glorify God, see, part of glorifying God and getting to that place is actually to recognize one of the things that Mary says that puts her in a position to be able to worship and magnify and glorify God. She says in her prayer, in her praise, she says, his mercy extends to who? To those who what? Read it. Those who fear him, right? His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. To fear God is not to be afraid that God is going to punish us or that God, something bad is going to happen to us. The fear of God is to see God rightly, to see ourselves in right relationship to God, to see that God is all-knowing God of the creator of the universe and I am a human being. It is to see this Not a separation, but this distinction that I am subject to someone that is greater than me. Now, the reason I don't, I think we can't see God in our relationship to God in this way. What do you think? Why do we not revere God, fear God today? And you don't have to speak to yourself, but I would ask you all: What is the reason? What's getting in the way of us seeing ourselves rightly before God today? I'm, I'm looking for answers. Ego, right? So you're right here. I'm glad you're listening to the sermon. (laughs) Right. Our ego, anything else? Other priorities, right? What's that? Seahawks. Seahawks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't have time for that sermon this morning, but we'll get to it. I'm, if you were here a few weeks ago, I showed the Super Bowl picture. Man, now you guys are still having issues with that. I, that's a, I'm going to save that for another sermon. My apologies. Uh, but uh, so, yes, yeah, sports, right? 
Anything else? Fear. Fear, yeah. Fear. How many times does the angel Gabriel in the Christmas story have to say to somebody, do not be afraid? <laughs> to Joseph, to Mary, to the shepherds, to the, you know, the angel is constantly going around going, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Right? See, we, 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 part of, I think, where, what gets in the way is that pride, right? I saw this in a, in a man I was talking to a couple years ago. He worked for NASA. He was an astrophysicist working for NASA, went to MIT, and he and I were having a conversation. Now, the only reason he was at church is because his kids had to come to church, and his wife believed in God. He did not believe in God. He was agnostic at best, which means he thought that there might be a God. And so he and I are having this conversation as he's waiting for his kids at Christmas time for them to get out of the kids' choir. And he's sitting out in our church lobby, and his wife, she loved God. I, she worshiped God. She glorified God in her life. And it was always a, amazing how she and he had been paired together, and it's amazing how God does that. But he did not really believe in God. And I caught a glimpse of maybe the reason why in our conversation, because in our conversation, he was talking about how smart he was how intellectually superior he was, and he actually made a comment that any scientist that didn't go to MIT really wasn't a scientist. And I saw this intellectual arrogance coming out of him at that moment, and I started to go, maybe the reason, and I wanted to say to him, and I wish, you know, there's always those things, you, walk away, you ever walk away from a conversation you, you wish you'd said, right? And I wish I had said to him, Maybe the reason you can't believe in God is because you believe too much in yourself. Maybe the reason that you can't see God, acknowledge God, worship God, glorify God, magnify God in your life is because you think you are God. See, that's what pride does. That's what the ego does. The ego wants to elevate and inflate ourselves to the point where we are God. And you can't be in relationship to God in that place. But what is enabling Mary to magnify and be in this right relationship with God is her ability to see God rightly, to fear God, and to acknowledge her own humble state, and that helps her to see the mercy of God in the incarnation, that God's mercy is being poured out in her. And notice one other thing about her rejoicing. Some of the things she says in her prayer, in her rejoicing, in her magnification of God is interesting because she says this, in verse 53, she says, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Ooh. Now, people warned me about this in Seattle. People said this about Seattle, and I actually witnessed it about a week ago. People had mentioned that it's, Seattle's the only place where you can see this dichotomy between wealth and poverty up close. And actually, I was walking in downtown Seattle, walking down the sidewalk, and I, there was a, a woman, very well-dressed woman, very, what I would call, put-together woman, designer outfit, looked stylish, on her cell phone, walking her dog down the sidewalk. The dog had this nice Christmas sweater on, and as she's walking down, I'm having to like go around her because you know when people get on their cell phones, you know, as they're walking down, they're like not paying attention to the people around them, you know. So I'm trying to get around the, her walking her dog, talking on her cell phone, and you know, I pick up a little of the conversation, da da da. And I thought, 
wow, you know, this woman's really put together. And I walk around her, and at the same time I'm kind of making my way around her, I'm also making my way around a homeless man who's leaning up against the wall next to her and next to me. And this was, I'm just going to be honest with you, what happened inside of me at that moment, I went to myself, the dog's sweater costs more than the clothes this man is wearing. That was my response in that moment. I, and I, and it, people had warned me about this. People had told me about this, but it was, that was my moment where I kind of went, whoa, rich and poor, right there in close proximity. But here's the thing, folks. They were in close proximity to each other, but they were in no way in relationship with each other. There's no relationship there. See, where I come back from the East Coast, we, we're, we're a little bit further removed from poverty. <laughs> we, we can, it's easier to ignore it. But here in Seattle, you can't. Maybe you've learned to, I don't know. But think about what Mary is saying in God, what does God's mercy do? <laughs> what does God's mercy do to the rich and what does God's mercy do to the poor? Fills the poor and sends the rich away empty. Why is that? Does it have anything to do with the ego and the soul? Does it have to do with the things that we're feeding our egos and the things that we're feeding our souls? Now, I believe that both those people walking down the street are people in need of God's mercy. But I began to ask the question, what would it look like for mercy to engage each of those souls? What would mercy look like for the woman walking her dog? And what would mercy look like for the homeless man? And what would happen if God's mercy really touched them at a soul level? Wow. See, this is something I would call not social justice, but something I've learned called restorative justice. See, we can do social justice in our world without God. I don't know, don't, I don't know if you know that. You and I can do lots of social justice in the world. You notice that you can do a lot of socially good things in the world, and God has nothing to do with it. But restorative justice brings God back into the picture of social justice. Because restorative justice is not only about meeting needs and bringing justice to bear, but also to bring people back into relationship with each other and to God. I saw this happen. We ran a cold weather shelter out of our church. So busy, professional, wealthy people would come and serve dinner to the homeless in our building. And they would come and sleep in our building in the cold weather and we would feed them meals. But when it happened was not in the act of service, but when it would happen was when that busy professional would take time out to sit down at a dinner table with that homeless person and they would have a meal together. What did that do? That created relationship. And you know what happened in the souls of those two people when that happened? Mercy. God's mercy came to bear. God changed each soul in that moment of relationship. And so many professionals, wealthy professionals, would come to me and say, and I heard this over and over again, they would come to me and they'd say, Pastor, they're just like me. Pastor, they're just like me. Amen. And I wonder if that's really what's going on with God's mercy is that 
that, that those who are prideful need to be humbled and the humble need to be brought up. And what God's mercy does is bring us back into right relationship vertically and horizontally, in right relationship with God and right relationship with each other in a way where we see each other again, anew, in a different way. Micah 6.8, my grandmother gave me that verse when she gave me my third grade Bible. You know what Micah 6.8 says, right? To love what? Mercy. To act justly. And to walk humbly with your God. What is Mary doing? She's walking humbly with her God. And maybe that's why she's able to see God's mercy. And to magnify God and glorify God in her soul. And she is fulfilled in the midst of circumstances that weren't very fulfilling. Her resume wasn't that great. You know, I think about this too. Advent is about not only God's Christ's first coming, first incarnation. Advent is a time for us to remember God's second coming. And Mary reminds us that for hundreds of years, God had not answered the promise. For quite some time, they had been waiting for the promised Messiah, and the Messiah had not come. How many hundreds of years had they been waiting for the Messiah? And what she says in her prayer is that God is a God who fulfills promises, and one day Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. One day the second coming is going to happen, and it's not, it's not going to be an incarnated Christ. It's going to be a resurrected Christ is going to come back. And I wonder what will happen in that day to the poor and the rich, to the prideful and the humble. What will happen in that day? Where, how will your soul be on that day when Christ returns? That's the most important thing is your soul, my soul. And I will tell you that the most important thing I ever did in my life was to humble myself and receive God's mercy. It happened for me when I was taking communion. I was at a Christian concert one night, and at the end of the concert, they decided they were going to have communion with the whole audience that was there for the concert. And so we all sat down in our seats, and they passed out the bread and the cup. Now, I had grown up in the church, rebelled against the church because of my own intellectual pride, thought I knew better than the pastor, knew better than God. I had life all figured out. By the, after all, I drove a 1980 Honda Civic. <laughs> and I had always heard John 3.16, John 3.16, John 3.16, which is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believed in him should have eternal life. For God so loved the world. I thought God loved the world. Good for God. That's a nice sentiment. So as I sat there that night holding this cup and holding this piece of bread, it dawned on me in this moment that God didn't just die for the world. God died for Matt. All of a sudden, this grace, this mercy became not something for everybody else. All of a sudden, this grace and this mercy became something for me. And you know how humbling that is? When you receive God's mercy. When you acknowledge that God loves you and is merciful and graceful towards you and you've been an idiot. When you've been so 
you've been living by this inflated ego and you decide, I'm going to let God's mercy come in. And in that moment, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt my soul filled. Because for the first time in my life, I had received God's mercy in this cup and in this bread. And every week we get here and we have communion. Some of you may be coming, why do we do communion every week? Some of you may be going, you know, why, why is this table open to everybody? Because I never know when God's mercy is going to show up in your life, in my life. I never know. But it is my prayer that God's mercy fills your soul. Let's pray together.